I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ uh, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Philippians is a book where joy has prominence, and this text particularly speaks to joy in the middle of suffering. So the context of this sermon, then, is both suffering and joy. Before I get too far into it, I was just thinking this morning about uh, the Eads as Pastor Mike was praying as they prepared to go to Tbilisi. They're going to live in a culture, a culture, a country and a culture. Uh, that are not there, so just a uh, culture. It works. You guys, it's efficiency. I'm going to say one word. You guys got to follow. Um, it, their their job there. They're setting up a missions training facility in a foreign nation so that we can prepare missionaries by sending them to a place that doesn't share culture and language, so that they can learn how to acquire it without without the facility around them, so that then they can go into these countries that are unreached that speak. Uh, different languages have totally different cultures and oftentimes are closed countries where the government is opposed and hostile to the message of Jesus Christ. In other words, his job is to go and in some ways suffer the loss of his native culture and language in order to equip missionaries to also suffer the loss of friendship, family, familiarity, government protections, and in some ways suffer What would enable and embolden men and women to lose all of those joys that we find good and comfortable and appreciated within our country? What would cause someone to be willing to embrace deep cost, personal suffering, and still hope for joy in the middle of it? The text this morning really is about those two things, and I think um, if you have those notes, I think it's a special and unique possession that Christians have that we can, in the middle of suffering, have joy. I don't think an unbeliever gets to share that. I don't think if you don't have Jesus Christ, you share in that unique possession of suffering and joy. Uh, you can have a, a happiness that's anchored to circumstances, and so when suffering comes, you lose that happiness. But the Christian is able to experience physical and spiritual and emotional pressure that we call suffering. And while having one foot in suffering, they are able to experience joy. How? Like, how do you get there? Some of you have been on either side of that. Life is good. Life is sweet and joy is easy. And it seems to evaporate when life gets hard. 
It's hard. It's difficult to find. It is, it is the proverbial needle in a haystack. You think you can find it. You know it's there, and you can't find it for your life. How do you get joy when life is hard? How do you pursue joy when family, people, career, society is causing pain? Whether you are experiencing suffering today or you will in the near future, I think I can guarantee that in a sin-cursed world, if you live very long, you will suffer. You'll suffer because you'll be at the graveside of a family member or sweet friend. You'll suffer because with all of the expectations you have for success, uh, your academic world comes crashing down because circumstances or intellect keep you from achieving a goal you wanted. Perhaps you'll not get the career. You envision that after you finish college successfully, that the employers will be lined up waiting and begging for you to come work for them, and they will throw salaries at you that will make your eyes boggle. And it doesn't happen. And you hear crickets, and you start working at McDonald's with a college degree. And you feel like your life is losing its direction. They're suffering. Perhaps you married with the sweetest, most sincere hopes that you would be a fantastic spouse. Five years into your marriage, your spouse tells you you're not so good. And that crushes you. Our life is filled with suffering, small and large doses of it. Uh, we hurt, we struggle, sometimes it's internal. We struggle with the failures that we experience that no one else knows. And in the quiet and the solitude of our heart, we are breaking because we hurt. Sometimes suffering is unexplainable. Some of you felt those clouds of despair where you do not know why, you do not know how to get rid of them, but life just is not filled with joy. With what hope does Scripture point you towards joy? How does God tell you to pursue joy? If you are like many in the world, the way you pursue joy is by changing circumstances. And frankly, I could probably speak to all the pastors in this church. We will frequently get people asking for counsel, and it will go something like this. My life is hard. My, my employer is rough. My circumstances are hard. I don't make enough money. My children are rough. Tell me how to fix it. Well, I, I think there are answers in the Bible for a lot of those questions. But think about the, the, the perspective. It starts with, I'm suffering. Suffering is bad. Therefore, good counsel will get me out of suffering. Good counsel will tell me how to get out of this painful moment of life. So I want to appeal to you again with this thought, that suffering with joy is the unique possession of the Christian. Maybe I could say the faithful Christian. So what can bring joy in the middle of suffering? Paul gives himself as an example, and I am suggesting that as a premise here, that Paul is not merely just uh, pounding his chest saying, look at me, guys, I'm awesome. That, that the reason he's, he's unfolding his suffering and saying, here's what's giving me joy, is so that we would learn from his example. In fact, the next example he gives is Jesus himself, who suffered, followed by Epaphroditus, who suffered and almost dies. So he pulls out these examples of suffering, not merely so that we can walk through the museum and say, oh, wow, he suffered, he suffered, and he suffered, but so that we might, in their suffering, see how they moved towards joy in the middle of suffering. 
what motivated them and with what courage they, they battled against these circumstances to find joy. In fact, I think the most well-worn verse in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is particularly speaking of contentment and joy in the middle of anything. And, and that's really what he says in the previous verse. Whether, whether he is wealthy or in poverty, I know how to find joy because I can do all things through Christ. Again, we look at the text before us. So he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and what has happened to Paul? Where is he writing this letter from? Roman prison. We know that in just a little bit because he's going to talk about the praetorian guard. So he's writing this from prison. And he's writing this to encourage others. I, I love the irony of that. He is in prison. The Philippians are free. And he's like, hey, I just want to encourage you. The encouragement is flowing from the place where we would think you would be discouraged in a Roman prison. Probably within five to seven years of the writing of this letter, the Romans will kill Paul. He says in chapter 2 that he's being already offered on the altar of their fruitfulness as a sacrifice. So we know Paul clearly sees on the horizon that he might lose his life for the cause of promoting the Philippians' Christ-likeness. In the middle of this, he says, I want you to know what's happened to me. The circumstances, being in prison, uh, probably in this case, being arrested in Jerusalem, being moved to Caesarea Maritime, from there being moved to Rome, always incarcerated, always with a threat of death. This is what's been happening to Paul, circumstantially. But look how he finds joy. Verse 12, this is the stuff that's happened to me that you all know about, but he wants them to know what's actually been happening that they might not know about. He says it's really been this. This is what's been going on behind the prison, behind the, the, the Roman inquisition of my faith. It's this. The gospel has been advanced. And that's kind of the foundation. He's going to explain two ways the gospel's been advanced, that he finds uh, our joy giving and bring him confidence and hope. But look again at verse 12. This has happened to me, and it has served to advance the gospel. That is my imprisonment. Uh, the incarceration in Rome has actually produced a movement of the gospel forward. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial, that's that word praetorian guard, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So there's two, there's two audiences who now know about Jesus Christ that didn't before. One is the, one is the praetorian guard the other is all the rest. We don't know who all the rest are exactly. It's just others. right? So he's in the city of Rome probably. He doesn't say that particularly, but again, they're Caesar's guard. So I think, I think logically that would be the most likely place they would be. And he's saying, hey, people have heard about the message of Christ. They've heard about what's going on here. And in fact, they know that I'm in prison for the cause of the gospel. This is reason to rejoice. Why is it reason to rejoice? Because if you go back to verse 12, he sees this as part of the way that the gospel is advancing through the known world. In fact, think about it in this way. God has brought the message of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, into the very home of Caesar, who falsely claims he is Lord. Throughout the whole Roman Empire, people would say, Caesar is Lord. And yet in his own household, his own guard are beginning to say, Jesus is Lord. 
If you go to chapter 2, Paul, and he pictures and shows them that in the future, there will be a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and declare that Jesus is Lord. Caesar himself one day, whether as a believer and saint redeemed in heaven or as a rebel incarcerated in hell, will bow before God and acknowledge that he is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Even if in the moment, while he's saying these things or writing these things, Caesar's power is being held over Paul, keeping him in prison. Paul has no doubt who the Lord actually is. So here's Paul's joy. Even though I'm in prison, and even though I am suffering, my suffering has, has amplified and spread and moved this message. So that if you were to take away Paul's suffering, he would see in it a loss of the mission of the gospel. It's almost as though the amplification, a big, huge bullhorn, has been put in front of Paul through his being imprisoned. Actually, the little word there is in chains. He says, because of this, there are, there are people within the Praetorian Guard and all the rest of Rome who now have heard the gospel message because of what God has done in my suffering. So how does Paul find joy in the middle of suffering? He has confidence that God has used his suffering to grow the reputation of Christ. Now, the way Paul speaks of the advance of the gospel here is, I think, very instructive. We find a lot of joy in people receiving the gospel of Christ. We find a lot of joy in people accepting Christ as Savior and turning from sin and being forgiven. You notice Paul doesn't say that here. Look at what he finds joy in. Verse 13 again, so that it has become known. Who is responsible for the redemption of sinners? This is the work of God, right? The Holy Spirit has got to convince them and open their eyes and bring with a confidence the saving work so that by faith people can be saved. They can repent of sins. This is a work that happens within the heart. And you parents feel that, that, that impotency, that powerlessness to, to make your kids believe. I mean, don't you wish you could just like open their heart, shove the gospel, and close their heart and be like, now you got it. You're saved. But God has, God has, God has kept us from that power. We don't have the freedom to make someone believe. We cannot compel faith. We can't coerce it. And frankly, that's one of our founding principles in this country of why we have freedom of speech is because true convictions can't be coerced. And we can't coerce our children to believe and be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. So Paul's celebration is not that people are saved, but that what has happened? People have heard of Jesus Christ and know that his imprisonment is for the person and message of Christ. I think there's a little bit of a, a goalpost shift here, isn't there? That is, as, as he's considering what should be treasured and valued in his life, it's the sharing and communication of the message of Jesus Christ. I can, I can suggest multiple applications in my mind just as a parent. Share the gospel to your children. You can't make them get saved, but this is a victory for Paul. He finds joy in this. 
they are hearing about Jesus Christ. It is both surprising and saddening to me how often we miss opportunities to share with people who Jesus is. To talk to others, to talk to our children about Jesus Christ, to, to speak of him in ways that bring glory to him. Think about how Paul phrases this. I, I am wanting you to know that what has happened to me has actually caused people to know about why I am in prison. He's just excited that people know he's in prison for Jesus' sake. What does that tell you about Jesus and Paul's life? Like, like we would respect someone who goes to prison for a cause that he finds so worthy that he abandons freedom to get it. Paul is willing to die for this message of the Messiah. What does that tell you about the message of the Messiah? It's a treasure. It's worth dying for. And this honors Christ. All of Rome, the guard knows this. In fact, you get to chapter 4, in verse 22, it says, those from Caesar's house greet you. Seems to indicate that some people within Caesar's household haven't just heard of the message of Christ. They've actually trusted in the Messiah. But Paul's cause for joy here does not lift a bar of joy to what God does. It lifts the bar of joy to what God does through us. I think that makes all the difference in the world. So as, as husbands and wives, oftentimes we wish we could see our spouse transformed. We have people here who have unsaved spouses. We have people here who have unsaved kids, and we want to see them saved. But can we just simply be faithful to pursue joy by sharing the gospel? By responding graciously when sinned against? In the middle of suffering, embodying the peace and the gentleness of Jesus. These are ways in which we make Christ look good. Is it worth it to suffer while being innocent when your spouse is angry with you so that you can embody for them the response of Jesus? Is it just worth it to show them Jesus in that moment by being like him? I'm getting looks back and like, oh, I don't know. It seems like that's... that's for, you mean I can't respond in anger and let them know how I really feel? Yeah, I know that would make you feel good because I know it makes me feel good when I do it. But the pursuit of joy actually demonstrates the value of Christ when we pursue Christ-likeness for the sake of his fame and glory and reputation. If for no other reason... Your responses, your pursuits, your values should show the world, show your family, show your coworkers, Jesus is worth it. And in so doing, as they begin to see the worth and the value of Jesus in you, you should stand back and rejoice because you have confidence that God is making his son known through the Christ-likeness and the verbal proclamation of the gospel through you. I don't think it does much good to suffer in quietness if they don't know you're a Christian. Paul's joy is that they know it's for Christ that he's doing this. So every once in a while, I, I think we can kind of fool ourselves to think we're good witnesses when we don't actually speak of Jesus. When we don't actually communicate that this is for Christ's sake, we do this. I get the idea that Paul had no problem pulling the trigger on sharing the gospel and talking to others about Jesus. I get that feeling but then I read in Ephesians where he says, pray for me that I might speak boldly the words I ought to speak so that I might make known the mystery 
for which I am in chains. Paul did have a problem with it. He wasn't always bold. And so he pleads for prayer that he would be bold. I'm like, oh, that's me. I struggle with boldness. Don't you? Have you ever had that opportunity where in some way, whether through behavior or through verbal testimony, you've made Christ known? And you walk away experiencing the joy that God gives. Have you ever had that moment? A coworker is discouraged. And you're able to talk to them about the hope you have in Christ. Perhaps your spouse comes to you and, and you're help, helpful and prayerful with them so that you can point them again to Christ and you see that God has used you. And it gives you this sense of rightness. That's Paul in this moment. Not only is he confident that God has used his suffering to grow the, the reputation of Christ, he's also used his imprisonment to, show, uh, to, to grow the preaching of Christ. Look again in verse 13 and to verse 14. He says, so all these people know, verse 14 now, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And now are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here's what's going on in, in, this, in this work of, of Paul as he's in prison. He gets put in probably house arrest in Rome so that he's able to have some, some level of contact with the outside world. And he looks around in the city of Rome and he sees more people are preaching more boldly because he's in prison. I think suffering has that tendency to do two things, either cause us to hide or cause us to be bold. Paul is looking across the cityscape, and he is seeing people preach louder with more confidence because of his imprisonment. And perhaps just a simple pattern of leadership here is that when leaders stand forth and blaze a trail, it makes it easier for others to follow. And courage is part of good leadership. A bad leader sits in the back and tells you what to do. A good leader does it as he encourages you to join him in doing it. And here's Paul as this preacher of the gospel who's kind of been put on ice. And he's stuck in house arrest. And he can't proclaim boldly to the city the gospel of Christ. So what is he doing? Well, he's talking to the guards. They, they know about Jesus Christ. And through the guards, probably others are hearing about Jesus Christ. But God has used this so that now that Paul is pulled out of this picture, in the vacuum of preaching ministry in Rome, new preachers are rising up and communicating the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Now, it's really fascinating as you keep reading. Look at how he describes there's two groups of preachers. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, verse 15 says. but others from goodwill. Okay, so there's two categories of preachers. There's the preacher who does this because they have good hearts and sincere consciences. And there's another group that preaches Christ for the wrong motives. I do not know exactly what is going on in the city that would cause this. I, I, I'm going to suggest to you some possibilities, but I think we need to be thoughtful that these seem to be brothers. They, he doesn't identify them as unbelievers, but as people who have bad motives. Perhaps you've, you've sometimes done the right thing for the wrong motive. I think a lot of preachers do struggle with preaching because they like preaching or preaching because they like people to listen to them. And so just project a sinful heart for a moment. You all have to sit there and be quiet and take it 
and I get a yap at you for like a 45-minute window, and you just got to take it. It's a power position, and it's meant to be. That's really appealing to people who have pride. That's all of us. And so it, it, it tempts people to do it for the wrong reasons. And again, in the vacuum of Paul's imprisonment, there is room for people to rise up to preach Christ for their glory, to preach Christ to draw people to themselves. If we look in the Romans, uh, the letter to the Romans in chapter 14, there's a division in the church between weak and strong. And it could be that those who didn't agree with Paul about that identification of weak and strong. I mean, can you imagine getting the letter to the Romans? You're part of the Roman church, and you kind of have a real strong conviction towards something. And Paul says, yeah, you're weak. That's kind of offensive. If Paul wrote a letter and we had like a split about like how to do some theological issue, and Paul's like, well, some of you guys are just weak in the faith. And that's you, right? Like you're the weak one. Like, seriously, Paul? Like, maybe you're the weak one. So it could be that perhaps while, while Paul is, is kind of set off to the side in his preaching ministry, those people who don't agree with Paul. Now, in chapter 14 of Romans, he doesn't call them unbelievers. In fact, he tells the whole church that, that the behaviors that, that identify the weak and the strong, that you could do either and be righteous before God and be a brother and that we should be careful not to judge and condemn one another. But it could be, if it's a theological divide over which good and godly people, Romans 14, disagree, but the one's weaker, one's stronger, that those who don't like how Paul identified them are using this opportunity to preach their standards in contrast to Paul's standards. I would imagine it's something along those lines. So again, look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, Verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is not a great attitude for a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why are you preaching so strong and so powerfully today? Because I don't like Paul. Oh, wow, what a, what a great reason to preach Christ. Right? What a horrible reason. In fact, come to chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from, why are they preaching Christ? Go back to chapter uh, 1, verse 17. The, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. I mean, it doesn't take them very long to be, be particularly put his finger on their motives and saying, do nothing for that reason that motivates them. And he goes after it. Their sinful reason for preaching is to be condemned. But look at how verse 17 ends. They, they want to afflict me. That's not how Paul responds, though. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Why are they preaching Christ? To bring affliction to Paul. Out of selfish ambition, out of envy, out of, out of this contentious spirit to cause problems with Paul. What's Paul's response? Because they're preaching the gospel message faithfully, even if their motives are wrong, 
Paul is saying, I am so grateful the message of Christ is being used and moving and being preached in the city of Rome. They're trying to add affliction to Paul. They're trying to make it worse for him in prison. Whether they're trying to stir him up to jealousy like he wishes he could be out there with him preaching. And they're like, yeah, look at us. Too bad you're in jail. Right? Like, like Paul wants to be preaching and he's chained. Or whether they're hoping to stir up the Romans saying, like, man, this preaching is getting out of control. We have got to crack down on this. Who's that guy in prison? Yeah, nail that guy. They don't know exactly what their motive is, why they're trying to stir up affliction for Paul and how that would look. Paul's response is, are they preaching the gospel? That's what I'm after. It doesn't matter if it hurts me personally. It doesn't matter if it causes a worse time in prison for me. If God is leveraging my imprisonment to make sure the gospel is heard by more people, I'm excited. That brings me joy. What an incredibly different attitude than the very people you're speaking of who preach Christ from selfish ambition. But that's not the only motive that is energizing the church in Rome. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Let me just point out uh, two things you might miss. They're doing it because they love, I think it's relatively undefined, but I would assume love for Paul and his mission for Christ. We shouldn't separate those two out too much. If you love Paul, what are you going to do? You're going to preach Christ. What gives him joy? The preaching of Christ. So whether you're doing it for Paul or Paul and Jesus or Jesus, I don't actually think there's much difference. Right? If, I, if I love my wife well for the sake of Christ, I don't think my wife is going like, hey now, you're only doing it for Jesus? Because I'm loving her for Christ's sake. I think Jesus is pleased with that. And in, in that way, both Christ and my wife should find joy. I think that's something that's going on here. But beyond that, look at this. They're doing it out of love, knowing that he was appointed or placed in prison for what? This is that, that word, apologia, where we get apologetics for. What is he doing? God has positioned him in Caesar's household. And probably going before Caesar himself. And this is right where Nero is beginning to do his crazy thing. This is where Nero begins to move towards him being this somewhat unsettled, unstable, psychotic emperor. This is right in that window of time where within a few years he is at least accused, and a lot of people think there's legitimacy to it, of burning down Rome. This is right at that change in his, his patterns of behavior. And he's saying, in this moment... Paul has put me here in this place of influence so the gospel gets defended. It's almost as though the sovereign Lord has said, hey, I, I, need, I need a SEAL Team 6, spiritually speaking. You're going to go into places where no one else wants to go. You're going to suffer like no one has before you. I'm going to put you on a mission that might lead to your death. Are you up for it? And Paul says, is the gospel going to be preached? Is Christ going to be magnified? Then yes, I'm up for it. And we look at that and we're like, man, that's impressive. And Paul would be disappointed in that statement. Every one of us should say, that should be me. I want to be called by God 
to advance the message of Jesus Christ. But how does Paul get us there? I want to go back to verse 18. Whether people, because of love for Paul and Jesus Christ, are preaching, or whether in love for themselves and desire to bring more affliction to Paul and are preaching, look how he concludes. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Okay, so what's not causing him to lose his joy? What is his focus not on? His suffering, his, his creaturely needs, his, his physical confinement, his chains, that is not what's driving his joy meter up or down. Instead, what's, what's got a hold of him is the magnification of Christ's reputation and the amplification of the gospel message itself. These things possess his desires and his soul so that if this is happening, his joy meter is going up. And so as he sees God leveraging his creaturely freedom, his satisfaction, his comfort, God is, God is leveraging that by sacrificing Paul's freedom. And in so doing, the preaching and the reputation of Christ are amplified. Paul's looking at these two things and saying, this is a good cost. This is worth it. Cost evaluation is always happening. Right now, you might be reevaluating what you buy when you go to the store and you get groceries. I know for us, uh, one of the recent revelations was how much eggs cost. <clears throat> In our family, we buy them by the five dozen box. And all of a sudden, my wife's like, wow, these are really expensive. I'm like, yeah, but what are we going to do, not eat eggs? Same thing with gas. But all of a sudden, it's not like, do we really need to do that trip? Like, like we're evaluating cost and what the cost gives us in return. Like this is normal. This is, this is how the market works. You know, so you pull up to the gas sta station. Yesterday, when I pulled up, I realized the person ahead of me got two gallons. This is kind of heartbreaking. They spent exactly $10, so I'm hoping that they have money. They just had a tenner, and that's all they wanted to spend. I'm just thinking, like, this is ridiculous how expensive it is that you could tell someone had to make the hard choice of not putting much in their tank because it's so expensive to pay for gas. I want you to consider that the God of the universe who deeply loves Paul. Look at the cost exchange and as God looks at this cost exchange, recognizes that Paul's freedom and even his life is small price to pay for bringing many more sons and daughters into salvation. And Paul sees it and joins God in joy. Come to verse 26 with me. I'm sorry, verse 27. This is the first command in the whole letter. Here's what the apostle says. This is a like command. For, the word let just seems so permissive, but it's really a command. So let me, let me phrase it a little stronger. Only make your manner of life. Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
It's a call to citizenship. Live as a citizen of heaven. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. Now Paul is beginning to frame for them a theology of suffering that calls for them to not lose sight of the fact that the cost of God's glory, the cost of of salvation, the cost of the advance of the ministry of the gospel, that that cost is going to be leveraged in everyday things. Whether it's our financial gifts that he'll get to in chapter 4, whether it's our personal freedom that he's speaking of in chapter 1, whether it's life itself that he speaks of in chapter 2 with Jesus and Epaphroditus, the gospel moving forward costs us dearly. And he's saying, yeah, but as a citizen of heaven, and you're giving away earthly stuff, like that makes sense. You're giving away today's things you can't keep in heaven for things in heaven that can't get taken away. In fact, if you go back to verse 6 and you go back to verse 10, he's reminding them the day of Christ is coming, judgment day is coming, where Jesus Christ gives eternal rewards. So that's why he says in, in verse 6, I am persuaded that, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. When you come to verse 10, he wants to present them blameless, before Jesus Christ. Because he is the one that will reward them and they'll eternally enjoy citizenship in heaven with those rewards. So that we come to chapter 2 and we see Jesus Christ showing that same economy of choice. Jesus Christ did what? Well, if you look in chapter 2, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of Therefore, God exalted him. Exalted him. Was Jesus considering the cost on on this earth, or was he considering the glory and the joy of heaven? Heaven. Heaven captivated Jesus in terms of its eternal values and goodness and glory for him and for his Father. And in the middle of suffering, it's almost as though Satan is trying to draw our eyes and our heart and our affections to this earth. And what is the worst that you can experience in this life? It might not be death. I mean, I don't know. I think I'd rather die than be tortured for 20 years than die. I'm just saying that there's a lot of things that are hard. Sometimes we're stuck in, in miserable careers and we don't know how to get out and we just want God to rescue us from a bad career. Sometimes we have the sorrow of watching an adult child self-destruct and there's nothing we can do to rescue them. As grandparents, you watch your grandchildren walk away from any Christian conviction. That's heartbreaking. I would recommend for every Christian in this room to pursue the eternal perspective that recognizes that God is calling his people to not love the things of this world too much, but to love Christ above it all. So the solution, the way in which we pursue joy in the middle of suffering is by prizing Christ above everything. It's by prizing Christ above everything. 
every ounce of suffering that God allows into your life is to draw you towards Christ and Christ-likeness. Every ounce of it. Every ounce of suffering is intended by God. This is because he is good and sovereign. The last song we sang it was about God sitting enthroned and his kingship over everything is not threatened by any cosmic or human threat. None of it. The heart of everyone in your life is under the kingship of Christ. The environment, viruses, the economy, our elected officials are all under the kingship of Christ. And so if through the fingers of God, he allows suffering to enter into your world and he hasn't filtered it out, it is because it is for your good. And by that I mean your Christ-likeness or the glory of Christ itself. And if that's why he's letting it through, then the person who loves heaven more than this life finds joy. And you find excitement in the fact that God has counted you worthy to suffer for a greater good, the glory of Christ. That the Lord does not protect us from all temptations. And so you and I will be tempted to think that our suffering is because someone else has somehow broken free of God's kingship. Somehow they have violated this principle that only good things are permitted to God's appointed people. And so we feel as though when our boss treats us unfairly, that this certainly has broken away from God's sovereignty. <laughs> like, like somehow there's this maverick human and he's our boss. And there is no way this is for our good. And our soul whispers to us that complaint, anger, retaliation are justifiable because somehow there's a stray dog on God's lawn and it is our job to fix it. You and I know that's not true. It's amazing how quick we are to act as though it is. So I go back to the text here. What causes Paul to find great joy? And what is he calling the Philippians to find great joy in? Something bigger than themselves. The advance of two related things. The advance of the reputation and the fame of Jesus Christ. And in particular, the proclamation of the message that frees and saves men from sin. This alone changes him from being a person in sorrow to being a person in joy. So a couple applications that I would just share with you all. As we consider how we suffer, can I just recommend to you that speaking of Jesus is something you should do more? In the middle of suffering, talk about what the Lord is doing in your life. So if you have a hard time at work, do you think God is doing that on purpose? Yes. Okay, with what purpose is he doing this? That Christ would be honored. So turn and honor Christ by talking about him. Is Christ teaching you to be patient? Maybe in a few verses he's going to say, do everything without grumbling and complaining. That's got to be one of the hardest verses in all the Bible. 
Everything without grumbling and complaining. We are professional complainers in our country. And the freedom of speech was not given for complaining. I think my children think that. No, they, my children are sweet children. But it's amazing how often we find reason to be offended and to be hurt. Rather than opening our mouths and complaint, let's open our mouths and deliberately pray or praise and call others around us to do the same. Like, it's really easy to complain about our president. I cannot remember a time in my life when that's not been true. It doesn't matter who's coming next. He's going to be easy to complain about or she's going to be easy to complain about. Right, like, it feels like we promote the worst possible presidents we can find. And I'll complain about him if I'm not walking in the spirit. When was the last time you entered a conversation where someone's like, man, I cannot believe... And they start going on the president and you say, hey, let's just stop and pray for him. I would love to see our whole government saved. Wouldn't that be so sweet? Wouldn't you love to have a Christian president who lived for Christ? Well, do you complain more than you pray? Do you listen to complaint more than you call people to pray with you? The next time you're tempted to be angry at your spouse, maybe stepping back and saying, how can I help them to see Jesus? And how can I be like Jesus in the middle of this conflict? Because I want my wife to see the response of Jesus when hurting. Paul is suffering deliberate affliction in prison. And what he says is, I'm rejoicing because Jesus is preached. When affliction comes, do you look like Jesus? This should remind you of Psalm 73, where as, as the psalmist is closing out the psalm, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire except you. And Paul is being put to that test, isn't he? God has stripped away his freedom. He's put him um, in, in a place where he can't do the things he wants to do. He can't go to the churches he loves. He's stuck, and he's longing for the Philippians, and he wants to be with them, and he's hurting emotionally, and yet he's filled with joy because in this, Christ is being honored, and Christ is filled with joy at the prospect of the gospel moving through Rome. And so Paul echoes the heart of his Lord. The psalmist finishes, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Christians, when God is all that satisfies, he gives us immunity against the suffering in this life. When you look for the stuff in this life to satisfy, you will be imbalanced and unstable in joy. Christ has promised to never leave us or forsake us. It doesn't matter what you're going through. You have Christ. So honor him, glorify him, make him look good in your home, in your workplace. And Christ will give joy as he accomplishes his purpose in suffering. I should just apologize in this sense. Suffering is complex. James and Peter speak of suffering, and they give us other ways to pursue joy that are very similar to what Paul says here. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the trying of your faith produces endurance. Right? So, so we don't merely just look at how Christ is being promoted. We also recognize that Christ is producing in us Christ-likeness. 
I, I just say that because I don't want this to be taken as though this is the singular antidote that Scripture gives. Um, do you love Christ more than you love your comfort? Do you love the message of Christ going out more than you love your money? Maybe I could say it this way. It seems as though, if we were to look at Scripture faithfully and look at all of church history, that God advances his mission on the suffering of his people. From Jesus to John the Baptist, from Jeremiah to Job, the candle that blazes in the darkness is lit in suffering. Are you willing to suffer so that Jesus might be glorified in you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I ask that you would help our church to find joy in suffering. Not that we'd be morose and morbid, that we would enjoy the pain, but that we would recognize that in your kind and good hands, all suffering for your people leads to the magnification of Christ by shaping us to be more like him and announcing his worth and value and pricelessness to those who might see us. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen this church to suffer well. We live in a broken world where suffering will come at us from different places and different people. Lord, equip us to hold to Christ, to value him and treasure him above all. I also ask for those that might be in this room this morning who recognize that they neither value nor understand all that Christ is. And I ask by the power of your spirit, you might stir within them a conviction of their need to be saved from their sin, to be forgiven and cleansed from the guilt. And that by seeing the death of Jesus Christ as both the place where justice and mercy flow, where your justice against our sin and your mercy for sinners is revealed so that they might come for mercy rather than likewise falling under your judgments. And that knowing that, they might come to Jesus Christ, be saved, be forgiven, and see the goodness and the sweetness of your Son. Lord, we ask for these things because we know that you are working through the ministry of your word. We ask this morning that you would remind us of the joy that we have in Christ. Suffering is never without cause. And when you have led us to suffering, the cause is always good. We trust you. Help us to live in this confidence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.